I'm going to start with a confession. Until a couple of years ago, Christmas was my least favorite holiday of the whole year. In fact, I hated Christmas. It's kind of a weird thing for a pastor to say, right? It wasn't because I hated Christ. In fact, it was because I loved Christ, and I felt like Christmas had just completely lost its meaning. And so I just kind of went through the whole month of December really frustrated, just kind of you know, seeing people doing all sorts of stuff that had nothing to do with Jesus, and it just left me kind of frustrated. And then about, I think throughout about three years ago, just the reality of, of the amazing miracle of the incarnation just hit me again. And I realized, you know what, I'm not going to go through the Christmas season letting all the people that miss it ruin it for me. And so Christmas has again kind of regained just that, that beauty as we think about the miracle of the God of the universe coming in human flesh. And so Christmas has become for me again one of my favorite holidays, and I just love being able to celebrate. And I would encourage you. Well, maybe it's favorite for like 10 people here apparently. Um, well, thank you for the 10 of you. Uh, now, I just encourage you during this time, just be amazed again. Just allow this time. Now, was Jesus born in December 25th? Probably not. Who cares? It's an opportunity for us to remember the amazingness of the incarnation that Jesus came again. And I am so excited. I know you guys, a lot of you could really tell last week that Todd was very excited to be able to preach through the Gospel of John. I'm excited along with him. Now, as most of you know, this is my excited face. It looks pretty much like all my other faces. Um, yeah, it looks like my sad face and those things as well. Um, yeah, such is life with me. Um, but you just have to trust me. I'm genuinely excited to go through this book and genuinely excited about even this passage that we're going to work through this morning. Um, one of the things that's really exciting for me is to think about how John wrote this at the end of his life and how the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, usually we call them the synoptics because they all kind of share similar sorts of things and how they'd been written earlier and how God had almost, I want to be careful how I say this, but had kind of built in like a, an intentional deficiency into those three Gospels. Now, just hear me correctly. I'm not saying that there was anything wrong or bad or incorrect in those ones, but there was something that was still missing in the full picture of who Jesus was that wasn't contained in those three Gospels that God intentionally left for a later time for John to be able to write in his old age to be able to look out over all of these years of not just walking with Jesus during the three years of his ministry, but as a teenager, but then through years of ministry as an apostle, through all the suffering and the circumstances he'd been through for John to get to the end of his life and to be able to say, you know what, I want to be able to fill in some of these gaps. And I think just what a gift of God this gospel is. God didn't have to give us this book. Right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us everything we need to know about Jesus and salvation, and yet God gave us this gift. As John says later in his book, thousands of books could have been written about Jesus' life. And so I think we need to see this book as just a precious gift from God, that he has given us these additional things to understand about who Jesus was. And I, I think of John saying it several times in the course of the book that he has seen these things and how to write at this point in his life as an old man not older, old, an old man. He writes, and probably one of the last people alive, if he was a teenager when Jesus walked on the earth, and now he's an old man, he says, I saw these things. One of the last people on the planet that could actually say that. 
what a beautiful gift God has given us. And to realize that God kept him alive for that very purpose. The purpose of entrusting to us this amazing gift. And so as you read this book, I want you just to be amazed again at what a gift it is. Everything that we have in this book is an amazing gift of God. But in some ways I see John as just a special and unique gift that was given to us at the end. And as I look at John, I think of what an amazing encouragement it is that this teenager, this son of thunder, has grown into the aged John of wisdom and couldn't pass these things on. It's kind of like Peter as we see him grow and mature. And what an encouragement it is for us that God matures us. And I think one of the things more than anything else that John wants to do in this book is John wants to pass on that intimacy and that closeness of, re- closeness of relationship that he had with Jesus. Right Over and over again, you see that John had this intimacy, this closeness with Jesus during his time on earth, and it's clear that that continued in the years after Jesus' ascension. His life as an apostle, he felt like he was right there with Jesus, walking with Jesus all the way. And he wants to pass that on to us. He wants to say to us, walk intimately, walk closely with Jesus as I've been able to. He wants us to, to be able to have that intimacy, and it just bleeds over in all the things that he's wanting to share. You know, one, one preacher said this. He said that our spiritual growth is inextricably bound up with the size of our vision of Christ. Right? A large vision of Christ means lots of spiritual growth. A small vision of Christ will mean small spiritual growth. And I believe this is what John understood. Not just spiritual growth, but intimacy with Christ is connected to how big your vision of who Christ is. And so John, knowing that, begins here in John chapter 1, verse 1. He begins this way, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through 18. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 13 this morning. But John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this book. 
But thank you even more for the gift of the word of your son come to make you known. God, I pray that this morning that your spirit will be at work. Speak through me, work in the hearts of all of us here. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done. Our desire is to love you in return. Use this time together to make us greater lovers of you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Now, just kind of a note here about this prologue, this introduction in verses 1 through 18. John introduces all kinds of concepts that he's going to develop out later in the book. It's typical for right, an introduction of kind of any book that you read. Um, introduces all sorts of concepts that are going to be developed out all later in the book. Now, in the introduction, you can't explain all of the details of um, all the concepts that you introduce, right? That's the point of the book. And so there's going to be a number of things that both from Todd last week, Todd next week, and me this week, that there's concepts here that we're not going to fully develop because really that's the point of the rest of the book. But John is introducing all sorts of different things here. And I just want you to realize that in the the hints of these various things that you will see them develop out over the course of the book. And I would encourage you, if you haven't been already, to begin just reading this book. Read it over and over, and you will watch how these things kind of develop. And so if you were just beginning to read it for the first time, you wouldn't get the depth of what John was doing until you've read the book and you come back and start again and you realize like, oh, you know how sometimes you watch a movie and then you watch it a second time and you pick up all these like foreshadowings and all these things that are introduced early on that you missed the first time through? It's kind of like that with the prologue. But if, if we kind of took each topic and preached all of what it was, there wouldn't be anything left for the rest of the book and it would take a really long time to get through the prologue. So... We're not going to go there. Um, So beginning in verse 4, we're going to see a couple of these things already. He said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And light and life are going to be two of the things that John is going to bring up over and over again. And in most of the book, the ideas of light and of life are connected with salvation primarily. Life is spiritual life, resurrection life, right, that sort of thing, eternal life. That's the way John's going to use this concept over and over. And light is like wisdom and understanding the thing contrasted with darkness, which is the evil, the world, and it's light and wisdom that brings that salvation. So it's all connected with that. But here the interesting thing is coming out of, remember last week, verses 1 through 3, he's making the point that Jesus is the one who was at the beginning at creation who made all things. Right? Verse 3, he has just made it explicit. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Not one thing, he says. Right? So he's talking about Jesus as the creator. And so I think the first way John would want us to think about these verses is to think about Jesus as the one giving life as the creator at the beginning. Right? That in creation, he didn't just make... Um, a static world that was uh, dead and just made up of stuff, but it was actually made up of living beings, that he breathed life into it. And he wants us to see that in Jesus, we should see the one who breathed life into the very creation at the beginning. And then as he begins to talk about light, I think we should think of Genesis 1 verse 3, right, where God said, let there be light and there was light. That the first thing that we should think of in reading this is as Jesus, as the one who was there at the creation that brought light and brought life to the creation. But then John, he likes to do these things where he leaves things kind of vague so that you can see that, but you see something else going on. 
And so you see that there's some other stuff that's going on here that he wants us to see Jesus as the original source of life and creation, but he's also hinting at us the way he's going to develop that Jesus is now the one who is initiating new creation. And that Jesus as the one who was the creator not only at the beginning, but as the initiator of a new creation is the one who is bringing life into this new creation and is bringing light into this new creation. And he's hinting at the way that he's going to develop it out in the course of the book. So verses 4 and 5 really kind of stand as this hinge between Jesus as the creator, as the preexistent, eternal one who brought everything into existence, to this Jesus who came to earth to bring life and light to men. It stands kind of in between and wants to bridge that gap for us. And he says that all men... He was the light of, I think the best way to read that would be that he was, verse 4, the light of humanity that Jesus has built into his creation. Paul explains it more in Romans 1, but he has built into his creation a degree of light and understanding of who God is. That all men, all men, all of you here have a sense of who God is and in his power and in the beauty of his creation and in all those things because of what he has built into all of creation. You see, some of you may suppress that reality. Some of you may mock it, while others of us rejoice in it. But the one thing you cannot do is deny it. That in all of creation, he shows who he is. Now, verse 5, depending on what translation you have, you might have been like, hey, that's weird. My translation says something different. At the end of verse 5, the ESV says, the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your translations may say, may have not understood it. Now, The reason is that the word that's used there is very similar to the English word master or grasp, which can be used in two senses, right? I can say that I've mastered someone or I've grabbed a hold of someone or grasped someone, and there's kind of a sense of like domination and overcoming, like that's why the translation goes that way. But I can also talk about grasping a subject or mastering a subject, Right? You see how the word can be used both ways? It's the same way here. So is it saying the darkness has not overcome, like grasped and mastered in that sort of way, or has not understood it is the way like the NIV and some other translations put it. And I believe he's doing the same sort of thing that he was doing earlier with light and life, is that he's wanting us to see a little bit of both here. You see, he's wanting to continue this, this creation motif, this idea that The light shines in the darkness should, first of all, take us right back to Genesis 1-3, right? In In the midst of all the darkness that was there, there was no light. God spoke and light shone in. But in the gospel as a whole, he's going to present darkness not just as the absence of light like it was at the beginning, right? It's talking about at the beginning of creation, it wasn't that the earth was completely evil and God somehow spoke some good into the... He's talking about just darkness and light came... And so John's talking that way, but he's also talking in the sense of darkness as kind of the evil atmosphere, right? That people love darkness. That's the way he's going to talk about it. And that's a a pretty familiar analogy. Lots of different kind of religious contexts use that. And so he wants us to see that Jesus is also, he's hinting at this and kind of indicating for us that Jesus is the one who also has overcome the evil atmosphere of this world and the evil forces of this world and that they have not overcome him. You see, there was an idea that was developing in John's day, which you still see predominant in a lot of people's thinking, and that is that kind of evil and good, darkness and light, are kind of equal forces that are fighting with one another. 
And some people call it dualism. It was kind of a form of different religions, and it's pretty predominant that, ah, you know, they're kind of evil. And sometimes even the way I think sometimes we think about Satan is it's like he's almost as powerful as God, maybe a little bit lower. And instead, the biblical worldview is that, no, God is dramatically stronger. And he's wanting to begin to combat that idea and say that, no, there, there is no, it's not like this battle that we don't know who's going to win, but instead it is that the light overcomes the darkness. Now, in verses 6 through 8, I've got to be honest with you. The first time I read through this, I'm like, what in the world is this doing here? Because, look, read verse 5 into verse 9 with me. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was, right? His thought just continues right in verse 9 from verse 5. And in the middle, he introduces John the Baptist to us. Like, okay. I don't know why that's there exactly, was kind of my first thought. And so I've kind of dwelled on it for a while, and I I think I kind of understand what John's doing here. You see, through the course of this prologue and this introduction, John's kind of wanting to take us from Jesus as the pre-existent creator over here to Jesus as the incarnate one who came and dwelled among us. And what he's wanting to do is almost kind of go back and forth, go back here and go back over here, because he's wanting to tie those things together so that the reality that the preexistent incarnate, the, the creator of everything who gave life and light, is the same one who actually walked among us. And so when he introduces John the Baptist, this is the way all of the other gospel writers introduce the ministry of Jesus. And so he's wanting to now begin to build this connection, because notice he hasn't even told us it's Jesus yet. Right? He doesn't even do that until later, not even within this passage that I'm, I'm going through. But he's wanting to begin to connect those ideas that that one there is the same one that was here. And so that's part of it. And John is going to come up again um, in a couple of different ways. But I think there's another reason, and I think it's because John himself... Now this is confusing because we've got two Johns going here. Okay, John the writer, I believe, was probably, when you get later in chapter 1... You see two disciples of John the Baptist get introduced to Jesus from John the Baptist, and they leave John the Baptist and go and follow Jesus instead. One of them is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he goes and gets Peter, right? And the other one doesn't get named. And most people believe that that was John, the gospel writer. (laughs) So I think what's going on here is John's even kind of drawing in some of his own personal story that the way that he was introduced to Jesus was through the ministry of John the Baptist. That John, the gospel writer, was probably a disciple of John the Baptist who was then introduced to Jesus through him, and that's kind of how things play out. So I think that's what's going on. Is he introducing this kind of to the, the personal aspect of this story, right? So we've gone from the Word was with God and created everything to now he's the one who I was personally introduced to in this way. Now he says a couple of very important things about John the Baptist here. Well, first of all, notice he never calls him John the Baptist. It's interesting to me that for John here, he doesn't care about the fact that John was a baptizer or even that he baptized Jesus himself. For him, there is one important thing about John, and we'll see that in a second. First of all, that he was a man sent from God. You see, John the Baptist was one who was commissioned by God to play a specific role in the ministry of Jesus, and that's what he tells us right here, was to bear witness to Jesus. And you see, John has a way of emphasizing things that's pretty straightforward for us. He emphasizes things, 
Right? He says them once and then he says them again right after. And he says it right here. He came as a witness to bear witness. It's like, well, yeah, it's kind of redundant, John. Well, yeah, it's because he wants to make the point. This is why God sent him. He was commissioned. And you begin to see he's building like this courtroom imagery of like witnesses and testimony. And he's saying John is kind of the, the first one who's introduced as one who is a witness of Jesus being the true Messiah, the true Savior, the one who would come to save the world. And you see, I think it would be better if we're reading John's gospel to call him not John the Baptist, but John the witness. Because that's the way that he views him, is that his main responsibility was not to be the one who dunked Jesus under the water and baptized him, but his main responsibility was as the one who would witness to and testify as to who Jesus was, to give evidence into the truth of who Jesus really was. You see, John, over the course of this book, is going to develop seven different witnesses for us. Is this, He builds this case as we're in the courtroom, and he's trying to say, Jesus is the true Messiah. Here's the ones that he's going to call to the witness stand. He will call the Father and the Father's witness to bear as to who the Son is. He will call the Son himself to bear witness to who he is. The Holy Spirit will come to bear witness of who he is. The works that Jesus does come to bear witness as to who he is. Scripture bears witness to who he is. All of those whose lives are changed by Jesus bear witness to who he is. And finally for John, John the Baptist is one who bears witness to who he is. And this idea of testimony or witness puts us into that legal, that legal setting and we begin to realize the seriousness of what John's trying to do. You know, it's one thing when we sit around and kind of just, you know, talk about stuff and we can say all sorts of stuff. You might play devil's advocate. You know, I got a friend that that's one of his favorite things to do is always, you know, be contrary and kind of, but it's a different thing when you get up on a witness stand and you raise your hand and swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. That what you say at that point is different than what you just say in everyday conversation, isn't it? And John's wanting us to think about what he's writing in that sort of a context, that he is bringing a case to bear as to why Jesus is the true Messiah. And remember, what's the point of testimony or witness? It's to establish what is true and what really happened, right? That's why we have testimonies. That's why we have witnesses, why we have multiple witnesses. That's what John's trying to do is to establish truth about what really happened and who Jesus really was. The second thing that testimony does is it causes a person to commit. When you take a witness stand, you can't waffle back and forth. You can't play the games that we play in everyday conversation, right? On the witness stand, everything you say is on the court record. You can't just say, oh, well, I didn't really mean that. I was just kidding around. No, it's, it forces you to take a position. And I feel like what John is saying here is that God the Father has taken a position with regard to Jesus Christ, and that is that he is his son and he is the Messiah. And John the Baptist took a position and committed as to who Jesus was, that he was God incarnate, that he was the Messiah. And I feel like what I would hear John asking us at this point is to say, will you commit? Are you one who is willing to witness to who Jesus is, to testify with your life and with your words who he is? Are you willing to make that same sort of commitment? Are you one who bears witness? But then he goes further. You see, John's purpose with his ministry wasn't just to give testimony, but it was that that testimony might result in something in verse 7 that all might believe through him. 
You see, the point of bearing witness, the point of testimony is to bring people to this point of, and I believe Todd talked about it a little bit last week, but the idea of belief here is, is primarily related to the, like the idea of giving allegiance to. It's not just kind of in my head saying, oh, okay, yeah, I believe Jesus was that. But it's saying, no, I trust him. I'll follow him. I give allegiance to him. I, I believe it in that sense of I'll actually give my life for it. And he's saying that was the purpose of his testimony. And I believe, again, both Johns would want me to say to you, do you believe in that sort of way? Do you give allegiance to this Jesus? Not to some Jesus you've made up, but to this Jesus. The one who was the creator before all things and who came into the world. Do you give allegiance and are you willing to follow him? Now, verse 8 seems to be related to the fact that some people had exaggerated who John the Baptist was, had started to think he was the Messiah, and maybe some of his disciples were kind of jealous of Jesus and were trying to elevate him. And so John, although he obviously values who John the Baptist was so highly, wants to make clear that he was not the Messiah, and so he's pretty blunt. This is typical of John. John's a fairly blunt guy. He was not the light. Okay, if there was any question, there it is. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. It's like, got it? Okay, I've said it twice before. I'm going to say it a third time. You guys got it? He's not the Messiah. This is who he was, and this was John's role. And it's interesting. John is such a great, John the Baptist is just such a great figure. As you watch him be willing to play the role that God had for him as the forerunner and not wanting to try to be the light. He wanted to make sure that he knew that the right one, and he was pointing people to the right one, but once he did, he was more than happy to step into the background. And I think he's just, there's a lot we could talk about there in terms of us being willing to play that sort of a role. Are we willing, as God calls us to, to simply be a mirror that points people to someone else? Or do we always want people to look at us? Are you concerned with getting credit for things? Because someone like John didn't care about getting credit for anything. He wanted God to get the credit. Are you content with being one that people sees through and instead sees God? Are you content with the reward that God will have for you when he says, well done? my slave. Now he calls us friend, he calls us children, but he'll say, well done, my slave. Are we content with that? John, we could go on about that, but we don't have time. Verse 9, John finally starts to get to this point. The reality that we've been looking to, that this word, the word has now come into the world. Jesus, the true light, right? It's establishing of truth. That's why he's bearing witness is so that we will understand that Jesus is, as he says in verse 9, the true light. Not a false one, but a true light which enlightens everyone. Again, like in verse 4, it says that Jesus has come and has given light, understanding to everyone. In Romans 1, Paul explains that out in much more detail. But the amazing thing, the main point that he's making here is that this true light the word, the one who was before all things, was coming into the world. The world that he made, the world that he made by the word of his power, the, the world that he has constructed everything, he's actually coming into that world. And if you think about it, you're thinking like, okay, what's going to happen when the one who created the whole world actually comes into that world? If you didn't know the story, you'd think like, oh, everyone was going you know, to make him king, going to worship him, the whole world was going to just flock to him and 
If you imagine what it would be like for the Creator to come and dwell on the earth that He actually made, on the world that He made, you'd imagine all sorts of things, and instead, look at what happens. John contrasts it in verse 10, right? Instead, this is what the world does. He says the world three times. Remember his repetition to emphasize something. And he says he was in the world. The the way it's constructed there, it's telling us that he dwelled for a long time. See, it wasn't just a fleeting visit. Jesus didn't drop in, say, hi, I'm the creator. All right, I'm gone. I'm out. He actually dwelled among us. Have you thought about how amazing it is that most of Jesus' life, 30 years or so, we have almost nothing? He dwelt among us as one of us. It's amazing. So he says he was in the world. He was, he was here among us for an extended period of time. And the second thing he says, and that this world that he was in was made through him, that the world that he was in owes its very existence to him. And so you see the first two points that John makes about the world lead up to the third one and just show the absurdity of it is that this world which he had made that depended on him, that he dwelled in for a long time, did not know him. How unfathomable, how inconceivable is it that the world which he had made would not even know its creator as he comes into it? It's like saying the one who made my mouth and my tongue and the air that goes into my lungs and the physics that create the pressure and the vibration of my vocal cords that he would stand in front of me having given me all that and I wouldn't be able to speak a sound. It's absurd. When he says he did not, they did not know, the world did not know, or some translations say recognize him, it's speaking of more than a simple intellectual understanding. It's that idea, again, of an intimacy to know as a friend, to be in right relationship with. They didn't know him in the right way. And the way this is, is formed here, it seems that what John is saying is that there was a, It was kind of a point-in-time thing, and he's saying the world missed its great opportunity. The Creator came and walked in their midst, and they missed it, is the way he says it. They didn't know him. They missed him when he was in the midst of it. And the tragedy of this ignorance, of this not knowing, of this not being in a relationship, is just so profound as you build this whole thing up. And I just think of the poignancy of that tragedy and the reality that for some of you this morning, you are still part of that tragedy. The 2,000 years later, with all of the witnesses, there continue to be those that don't know him. That there are some of you here this morning that don't know him. And the tragedy of that. But look where he goes from here. He says, not only was it the world in general, but I think the best way to translate Um, verse 11 is he came home. When he says he came to his own, he's saying he came home. And his own, I think the best way to say this would be he came home and his family didn't receive him. Like, doesn't that just make the picture a little different for you than this whole his own and his own didn't receive him? It's you came, the, the one came back to the family and the family rejected him. 
See, he's talking now about his specific people. He had constituted. Remember, we went through the Pentateuch of where God constituted a people for himself to be his people, to continually relive in their life, in their corporate life together, to relive the reality of God as the Redeemer, to relive the Exodus, to be reminded of these realities, and to look forward to the day that he would come. And he comes to them, and they don't receive him. They reject him. It's not only that the world doesn't know him, but his own, his family, he comes home to his family and they reject him, is what he says there. And the tragedy just gets even more significant here. And to me, it's just so amazing that it just continues until today. That there are some of you that maybe have have been here since you were a kid. You may have been here a long time. You may have grown up in the church. I don't know what it is, and yet when Jesus comes to you, you do not receive him. It's baffling to me that at this point, 2,000 years later, we have billions, billions of people who have still not received him as the light who came to shine in the darkness. In one sense, it's a, it's a story of tragedy. I feel like John would just want me to keep saying, where do you stand? Do you stand with the rejectors or the receivers? Do you stand in the light or do you stand in the darkness? Where do you stand? John just seems so concerned with that. And then look at the corner John turns. If you just got to verse 11, you'd be like, wow, this story is horrible. (laughs) He came and they rejected him, but he wants us to know, although many... Even most rejected him, that there were some who did receive him. And he makes it clear, he puts this all who did receive him right up at the front. And it's to contrast for us those who did not receive him with those who did receive him. And there's three important words here in verse 12. The first one is the word gave. You see, the end of the story isn't the, a story of tragedy, but a story of grace. Giving, graciously giving something. Right, he said, but all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave. He graciously, kindly gave something. The second word that's key for us is the right or the authority. He gave what? The right. And see, this isn't, this isn't about having a new power that you didn't have before, like you didn't have the ability to be a children of God. Now it is, it's, the, it's more an idea of like status or authorization, that we were not authorized to be children of God. We were not allowed to be, and now he graciously has given us authorization, in a sense, to be children of God. And that's the third word that is key for us here, is children. It's interesting, John never uses sons. He never talks about us as sons of God. Paul does, right? But he never talks about us as sons. He reserves that for Jesus alone, but he talks about us as children of God. The same idea of adoption, of being part of the family, of being made part of the family. The children are, he's clear, those who believe in his name. It is incredible to me that the creator God who holds everything together by his power, who made everything, who brings light and life, should enable me, me, one who rejected him, to become 
his child. I got to be honest with you. The thing I've been praying about is that I and you, that together we might get some sense of the magnitude of the miracle and the amazingness of what is going on here, that the one that has rejected... Just pause for a moment, and each one of you, I want you to think through what your life looked like prior to following Jesus. For some of you, that means right now. I understand that. But think back, what does your life look like apart from Jesus? Think of your failures, your rebellion, the way you responded to him, the things you said about him, the things you said about his word all the things you did that brought shame on you and on your family, all the things that you did that nobody knew about, that you did in secret. You think about all those things and who you were and what you deserve apart from Jesus. And now I want you to think that he has taken you from all of that and adopts you into his family. He doesn't just let us go to heaven. He doesn't just kind of give us a couple of things. He actually adopts us into his family. We become part of the family of God. I mean, I would have been fine if he just made us a slave and brought us into his kingdom for eternity and we'd just be a slave. But he says, no, not only that, and over the course of this book, that's where John, just the intimacy that John had with Jesus, he wants us to see where it starts out as we were slaves to sin and we become slaves to God. And then through the book, he says, no, I no longer call you slaves. Now you're friends. And what does a friend do, right? He says, but no greater love has a friend than this, that he dies, right? And, and then he says, no, you're not only friends now. You're actually brothers. You see the progression there. And, we, and he brings it up right here at the beginning of the book that we become children of God. That is what we are now authorized to be. And it's amazing to me through the course of the book, you're going to see how many people didn't want that from Jesus. They wanted some bread. They wanted some food. They wanted to know how they could do things right. They wanted maybe to even kind of be with God for all of eternity, but they really didn't want the whole thing. They wanted things from God, but they didn't want relationship with God. And I think there are some of you this morning that came because you wanted something from God. You came here because you wanted something from him. And instead he says, no, I want you to want me. I want you to be my child. I want you to be in my family. I want you to be in relationship. And that's what he's calling out to you. And all that stuff that you think you need, he provides for you as a member of his family. But don't mistake that for what he really wants for you. You see, it's amazing. Later he says to the Pharisees in this book, he says, you search the scriptures Because in them, you think you will find life. And he goes, but you've missed it. The scriptures testify of me, and in me you find life. I can't tell you how many of us miss that. We're looking for it in all the wrong places, and he says, no, it's in me. And look at the simplicity of how we get this. Contrasted with all the complications of all the various ways people say, this is how you approach God. These are the things you do. This is what you do first, and you got to do that, and then you got to do this thing, and you got to do all these sorts of things. And he says, no, it's just simplicity here. You receive him. You believe in his name. That's going to be John's mantra through the book because that's why he wrote it. I want people to believe in him. That was John's heart's Passion was that people would believe in Jesus. Now, the idea of his name is something that's so different for them than it was for us, than it is for us. 
we use the word name as just kind of a, a simple way of referring to a specific individual, right? Oh, Josh Walker. Okay, that's just a way of referring to me. That's my name. For them, the idea of name was a way of kind of encompassing all of who the person was, their reputation, their character. Um, those are words that get closer to what it means. But when he says that you believe in Jesus' name, it's not talking about just believing the name Jesus or even that he you know, kind of came and walked on the earth. But it, it gets to the heart of why John is writing this gospel in the first place. It's that we should believe in Jesus in the fullness of who he is. And so John writes this gospel so that we might really know the fullness of who he is and therefore truly believe in his name. Right? Too many people go through life and we kind of constantly have to be reconfronted and rechanged on these things because we start to believe in a Jesus that we've made up. We start to make up all sorts of things about who this Jesus is, and he's writing to say, no, this is who the Jesus really is. He was the creator, and he came, and he did these things, and this is what he was like, and these are the kinds of things he said, and you need to believe in that Jesus and receive that Jesus. And John ends in verse 13. He gives all these, he gives kind of a threefold way of, of ways people think about the way that they come to God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. And he's getting at a bunch of different things there. But if you want, the easiest way, I think, is just to encompass every way that people think about coming to God. Based on my inheritance, because, you know, I'm one of these kind of people, and so these kind of people have always been saved, to it's because I chose to, and I did all these sorts of things. And he says, no, I want to contrast all of that to you with one thing, that there is only one way that we are born, but of God. You see, any time someone comes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is an act of the will of God in their hearts to change them. It's nothing else that can get us there. You see, it is only an act of the will of God. And what a miracle that God acts in such a way to change us. So as we conclude and we look at this passage, I just want you to see on the one hand, Jesus as the cosmic creator who has made all things, who brings life and light, And John says, I want you to have, as this aged one, I want you to have this accurate view of him. So on the other hand, you see that he is the one who came into the world so that we might believe in him and be adopted into his family. John wants us to know we can have intimacy, family intimacy, with the creator God of the universe. That's a pretty profound thing. My mind just swims trying to just grasp the magnitude of that. And you see what Jesus is offering here is he's offering life. To get back to our initial point there in verse 4. He offers life. He is the original creator of life and as the one that initiated new creation, we will see over and over that he is offering life, spiritual, eternal life, and he's offering it to all who will believe in his name. And I just want to end by asking you, are you looking for that life in the darkness? Are you looking for life in all of the other things that are out there? Where are you trying to find true life? Like we we all know we need it. We all know when we don't have it. We all know when we're living death lives rather than life lives. 
Where are you looking for? Because Jesus says, I'm the only one that has it. Come to me and receive me. And sometimes even as followers of Jesus, we forget that and we start looking to the darkness to give us life. And we think that we're just going to have that life and we think of that life as something that starts when we die. Kind of like the way a lot of people look at retirement, like, oh, I'm just going to work and I'm going to struggle and have this miserable life so I can have this great retirement. Sometimes Christians look the same way, like, oh, I'm this miserable life and suffering so I can go to heaven at the end. It's like, no, I offer you life, abundant life now. He's going to unfold it through the course of the gospel, how much he does. I say, are you seeking life in Jesus? Believe in his name, seek life in Jesus. If you need someone to talk to about this stuff, if you're saying, you know what? I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want that life. Love for you to get baptized this morning. There'll be people up here at the prayer room. Love to pray with you. Talk through anything that you're struggling with. Please come up and get some prayer. I encourage all of us, let's walk this week as those that seek life in Jesus and him alone. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your spirit. Lord, it's futile for us to do any of this apart from you. So we just submit ourselves to you. I pray that you will penetrate our hearts, that you will continue to change us, make us into your people. Lord, we believe. Please give us more faith. Lord, make us your people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.